Maine's top election official is barring Donald Trump from the state's 2024 primary ballot. It's Friday, December 29th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, Trump's team says it's planning to appeal that decision in Maine. We'll look at how Republican lawmakers in the state are responding. Also this hour, Russia launches a wave of drone strikes across several cities in Ukraine. And this time last year, many economists believed the U.S. would be in a recession by now, but that's not the case. Labor force participation picked up, immigration picked up. The distortions to supply and demand from the pandemic really began to unwind. We'll have a closer look at how the economy fared and what could lie ahead. In sports, Celtics win, rain and clouds in the 40s today. It's 7.01, now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Korva Coleman. Russia has launched its biggest air attack against Ukraine this year. As NPR's Hannah Palomarenko reports from Kyiv, officials say at least 16 people were killed and 97 were wounded across the country. In total, Russia launched about 160 drones and various types of missiles at Ukraine, most of which were destroyed, the Ukrainian Air Force said. We haven't seen so many targets simultaneously on our monitor for a long time, says Air Force spokesman Yuri Ignat. Emergency services continue to clear the rubble in several cities where civilian infrastructure has been damaged, schools, hospitals, residential buildings and a shopping center. Ukraine's foreign minister Dmitro Kuleba says the international community's response to the massive attack should be continuing financial and military support for Ukraine. Hanna Palomarenko, NPR News, Kyiv. The United Nations says tens of thousands of Palestinians are moving into southern Gaza. They're fleeing Israeli strikes in central Gaza against Hamas militants. The UN says southern Gaza is already jammed with displaced people. Former President Donald Trump will not appear on Maine's GOP primary ballot. As NPR's Dave Mistich reports, Maine's Democratic Secretary of State, Shanna Bellows, issued that ruling last night, citing a section of the U.S. Constitution known as the Insurrection Clause. In a 34-page ruling, Bellows said Trump's candidacy is invalid, writing that the declaration on his candidate form is false because he is not qualified to hold the office of the president under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. The post-Civil War addition to the Constitution was designed to keep Confederate rebels from holding high-level elected positions. The ruling out of Maine is just one in a string of decisions from states deciding whether Trump can appear on a primary ballot. The Colorado Supreme Court ruled he could not. But Michigan's Supreme Court ruled that he can appear on that state's primary ballot, with the court stating it believes it cannot rule on the merits of Trump's candidacy unless and until he is the Republican Party's nominee. A spokesman for Trump's campaign says they'll file an objection to Maine's ruling. Dave Mistich, NPR News. A federal judge has approved Georgia's newly revised political maps. Republican lawmakers created them after the judge found the old maps illegally diluted the power of black Georgia voters. From member station WABE, Sam Greenglass has more. This fall, U.S. District Judge Steve Jones ordered Georgia's Republican-controlled legislature to create one new majority black congressional district. But instead, Republicans have managed to preserve their 9-5 advantage in Congress by dismantling a Democratic voting coalition district in suburban Atlanta. This was a district where Black, Latino, and Asian American voters together formed a majority, and now they are split up. Sam Greenglass reporting. 
You're listening to NPR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBMR in Boston. Maine lawmakers are reacting to a decision to remove former President Donald Trump from the state's primary ballot. The Maine Republican Party says it plans to take the ruling to court. It also says the decision infringes on Maine voters' rights. Republican Congressman for Maine Jared Golan says although he does not think Trump should be reelected, he should be on the ballot until found guilty of insurrection. Outgoing Boston City Council President Ed Flynn says the council is, quote, not serious about public safety. That comes as the council voted to block over $13 million in counterterrorism funding. The federal grant would have been used to help mitigate disasters in Metro Boston. Flynn tells the Boston Herald Mayor Michelle Wu is expected to refile for the grant next year. First Night Boston has a new home this year. This event will be held at City Hall Plaza because of construction going on at Copley Square. T.K. Skandarian is a member of the First Night organizing team. He says the celebration will be spread out throughout downtown. We will begin at 11 o'clock at City Hall Plaza. We'll have programming indoors and out into the evening hours and all the way, ending at about 12.30 a.m. on January 1st, 2024. Skandarian says that'll be when the fireworks over Boston Harbor end. He says the best viewing will be from Christopher Columbus Park. The T will have increased subway service Sunday for New Year's revelers. Rides for all services will be free after 8 p.m. Conservationists are reporting a 45 percent increase in the population of a shorebird called the American Oyster Catcher. The Plymouth-based nonprofit Manomet has led a 15-year effort to protect the species. As WBUR's Barbara Moran reports, the oyster catchers are bucking the trend of many coastal birds, which are declining because of habitat loss. That's the sound of an American oyster catcher, a large black and white shorebird with a beak that looks like a carrot. Until recently, a lot of their eggs didn't make it, says Manomet shorebird scientist Shiloh Schulte. So the first nest they'd lay would get washed out by a storm, and then the second nest they lay gets eaten by raccoons, and then the third nest they lay gets disturbed by people recreating over Fourth of July weekend. One after the other, different factors would hit. Schulte says beach fencing, habitat restoration, and education have helped the recovery and should benefit other declining shorebirds as well. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Greater Boston Food Bank, committed to ending hunger here. Give the gift of a holiday meal and bring joy to our neighbors in need. A $35 donation doubles to help provide two holiday meals. Together, we have the power to make it a hunger-free holiday season. Donate now at gbfb.org slash givemeals. The Celtics came back from a 21-point deficit against Detroit last night at the Garden. The Seas clinched a six-point victory against the Pistons in overtime that extended the Pistons' losing streak to a record 28 games. Final score was 128-122. to The Seas play at home again tonight against the Toronto Raptors. The Bruins have the night off. They'll welcome the New Jersey Devils to the Garden tomorrow. Spotty fog and showers are possible this morning. Otherwise cloudy today with a high in the mid-40s. Tonight, a chance of showers and some more patchy fog. Temperatures will fall just a bit to the low 40s. Tomorrow, the clouds stick around and there's a 
chance of more showers. Highs will be in the upper 40s. The sun returns on Sunday. We'll have clear skies and highs in the low 40s. It's 40 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Annie E. Casey Foundation, using research and evidence to develop solutions that help families and communities create a brighter future for young people. More information is available at AECF.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez in Los Angeles, California. And I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. North Korea says it is preparing for war with the United States. State media reported that leader Kim Jong-un was ordering accelerated military preparations to counter what he called unprecedented confrontational moves by the U.S. Jenny Town is a senior fellow at the Stimson Center. It's a foreign affairs think tank where she directs its 38 North program that focuses on North Korea. And she's here with us to talk about about all this. Jenny Town, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So I want to mention here that we have heard similar rhetoric from North Korea before. So I have two questions about this. Why now? And how concerned should the U.S. be about this? Um, I mean, you're right. We have heard a lot of this, especially towards the end of the year now. Um, I, I think we need to keep in mind a couple of things. One, they're doing sort of their State of the Union sort of address here at their um, at the workers party meeting that's going on right now at the plenary um, and wrapping up what they see um, as what they've accomplished for the year what their challenges are going to be and what their goals for the next years are going to be as well um, it, it's important to keep that in mind <laughs> um, but also the the complaints that they have are, are pretty consistent of um, the way that the U.S. and South Korea have been doing back-to-back military, large-scale, live-fire military exercises for months on end, oh. um, the increase in, um, you know, nuclear consultation, the things that are going on with that the North Koreans consider to be practicing war, um, and that they are sort of mirroring that language. Ah, so that's um, what they mean by the U.S. So that's what he meant by unprecedented confrontational moves. Yes. So it's a lot of the the more the U.S. and South Korea talk about nuclear consultation um, and the nuclear exercises and things like this, um, the more we hear this rhetoric out of North Korea that they're they're sort of doing the same. If you're going to plan for this, we're going to plan for it, too. Now, how plausible is it that North Korea might have the ability to ramp up a military that poses a real threat? Well, you know, it definitely has the ability to ramp up um, how much of a threat that really is at the end of the day, um, you know, is questionable. But how much of a threat are we willing to tolerate either? Hmm. Um, You know, the geography requires very little um, to be um, damaging, right? And so here's here's the question is, you know, as they're ramping up, is it are they actually ramping up for war or are they ramping up rhetoric? And I think that's the a big open question these days. So is there any scenario under which North Korea could be persuaded to give up its nuclear weapons or is that just wishful thinking? Well, <laughs> these days it's wishful thinking. Um, it, it is a we have crossed a line where the North Koreans see their nuclear weapons program in a very different way than they did in 2017, for instance, um, or even in 2018, where they were willing to negotiate about the nuclear program. 
The difference now is that they've enshrined it into law, as well as now a constitutional amendment mandating the continued development of WMD. So everything dealing with um, North Korea's nuclear program going forward is going to be that much harder. And the real challenge here is how do you convince an insecure country um, to disarm? We're not preventing them from getting nuclear weapons. They have nuclear weapons. Mm. The question is now is how do we convince them um, that they're better off without nuclear weapons? And certainly the more we remind them that we could destroy them at any time, you know, with our nuclear weapons, the harder to make that case. Mm, that's fascinating. This is really helpful and interesting. We only have about 20 seconds left, but how would you assess the progress of its nuclear program? As briefly oh, as you can. Made, yeah, it's made leaps and bounds. It, you know, it really did set goals. It, it knocked them down one by one. And now with the cooperation, increased cooperation with Russia, it has the potential to do a lot more. That's Jenny Town. She's a senior fellow at the Stimson Center. That's a foreign affairs think tank where she, as you just heard, focuses on North Korea. Jenny Town, thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. NPR's Greg Myrie has covered many wars. This year, he's reported on Israel's fight against Hamas and Russia's invasion of Ukraine. As the year winds down, he offers this look on the conflicts and the prospects for bringing them to an end. When I called historian Ann Applebaum to talk about the wars currently raging, she offered this stark assessment. I think we've reached the end of a particular period in history when it was even possible to talk about some kind of universal values or rules. I've seen this lack of restraint in Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It includes deserted villages, scorched homes, abducted children, and mass graves. Applebaum, who writes for The Atlantic, sees Russia's actions as part of a broader move by autocratic leaders and groups that reject many international norms established after World War II. The tactics have been hit civilians, hit sites of industrial production, hit the electricity grid, hit hospitals. The war in Ukraine is really an attack on those laws, on that system itself. In covering the Russia-Ukraine war and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, recurring themes keep jumping out. Both wars stretch back generations. What we're witnessing is just the latest eruption. Modern weaponry makes them deadlier, and accumulated hatreds make them harder than ever to resolve. At an Israeli military office, I saw a 45-minute video with gruesome scenes of Hamas militants rampaging through southern Israel. Much of the footage came from Hamas militants wearing body cameras, filming themselves as they slaughtered Israeli civilians. In its response, Israel's military says its operation in Gaza targets Hamas, not Palestinian civilians. Yet this is the fourth Israeli conflict I've covered. Israel has never unleashed such a massive bombing campaign in such densely packed civilian areas as it's doing daily in Gaza with predictable results, the deaths of thousands of women and children. Ian Bremer is a global affairs analyst who runs the Eurasia Group. He sees two wars that will be very hard to solve. The Ukrainians believe a genocide has been committed against them. The Russians don't think Ukraine has a right to exist. The Mideast War is equally grim. Historically, Israel-Palestine has been the most challenging geopolitical issue out there. I don't think it's getting any easier with this war. Here's why. Israelis and Palestinians fought their first war in 1948. Now, 75 years later, the leading Palestinian faction, Hamas, says it wants to destroy Israel. And Israel's long-serving Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu vows to eradicate Hamas. 
During my most recent time in the Middle East, I was struck by how views have shifted across the spectrum, even among those who support an eventual peace deal. Look, we need a new administration in Gaza. Irel Margalit is a leading Israeli high-tech entrepreneur. He used to be in parliament, the Knesset, with the Liberal Labor Party, which supports a Palestinian state. He's a sharp critic of Netanyahu and says Israel needs a new government. He also says Hamas needs to be replaced with a Palestinian administration that's willing to build life rather than death willing to build schools which don't have ammunition right underneath them, willing to build hospitals which doesn't have a maze of tunnels right underneath them. In the past, I traveled to Gaza dozens of times on my own. Now, Israel's bombing campaign has made it too dangerous. The military has only taken journalists in on brief, chaperoned visits. NPR's Palestinian producer, Anas Baba, has been our eyes and ears in Gaza. He recently described his devastated hometown, Gaza City, this way. This is not my city. I cannot even realize what street it is. I only can smell death, dead body under the rubbles. Nothing is the same. The story of the intractable Israeli-Palestinian feud is well known. Far fewer know the history of the Russia-Ukraine dispute. Ukraine declared independence from Russia after the 1917 Russian Revolution, but didn't manage to break away until the Soviet Union fractured in 1991. That Ukrainian independence has been under assault since Russia's Vladimir Putin invaded in 2014. Dmitry Alperovitch, who was born in Russia, now heads a Washington think tank, the Silverado Policy Accelerator. He's a fierce critic of Putin. For Putin, it's really not about whether he can capture a village and keep it occupied. His determination from day one has been to control Ukraine, to prevent Ukraine from being part of the Western alliance. Ukraine wants to recapture lost territory. More importantly, he says, it seeks the long-term protection that would come with membership in NATO. What Ukraine really wants is stability and security for its country to prevent another invasion from Russia. And that's much more challenging to achieve. The U.S. plays a critical role in both wars, but may not be able to forge the outcome at once in either conflict. One reason is that U.S. foreign policy has become much more fickle. Once upon a time, Democrats and Republicans worked together on foreign policy under the notion that politics end at the water's edge. Not anymore, says Ann Applebaum. In an era of really harsh partisanship, it will be much more difficult to maintain a consistent foreign policy over time. President Biden's plan to send more military aid to Ukraine is now blocked by Republicans. Biden's strong backing for Israel faces pushback from many in his own party, who say he should be showing more support for the stateless Palestinians. The assumption that the U.S. could at least be relied on to have the same policy over several different administrations, that's probably belongs to the past. Ian Brimmer acknowledges the difficulties in finding permanent solutions to both wars. But he says the only real hope is for the U.S. to be fully engaged. A world where you don't have global leadership, where the United States is increasingly unwilling to be the promoter of global values, you will get more conflict. Today, there are calls for ceasefires and peace talks. But both wars are a long, long way from a permanent solution. Greg Myrie. NPR News.
This is NPR News. Thanks for starting your Friday with 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, Amazon Prime viewers will start seeing ads in its TV shows and movies in January. Unless customers are willing to pay a little more each month, we'll look at what's driving the change. It's 720. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. WBUR supporters include the Boston Foundation. Knowing that bringing people together is the best way to advance opportunity and equity in our city, the Boston Foundation is a convener, a research hub, and a civic leader. The Boston Foundation. Move equity. Move Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. Hi, Barbie. 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 Hollywood has been on a roller coaster this year, from the peaks of Barbenheimer to the depths of actors and writers strikes. But film critic Bob Mondello says one thing that's up this year is the quality of the movies. His top 10 list on all things considered from NPR News. Listen today, starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Cloudy today, there's a chance of rain and fog. We'll have highs in the mid-40s. More showers and fog possible tonight. It'll be in the low 40s. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy with a high bank in the mid-40s. There's a chance of showers in the morning. On Sunday, we finally get a sunny day. Highs will be in the low 40s. It's 40 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Craft in America, with two new episodes, Play and Miniatures, Premiering on PBS December 29th at 9 and 10 p.m. Now streaming on the PBS app and craftinamerica.org. From the George Lucas Educational Foundation, creator of Edutopia. For 30 years, committed to advancing educational innovations and research that improves pre-K to 12 learning. More at edutopia.org. From Churchill Downs, presenting the 150th Kentucky Derby dedicated to making memories last forever for nearly 150 years. The Kentucky Derby on Saturday, May 4th. More at KentuckyDerby.com. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm A. Martinez. Every year around this time, we remember a few of the musicians we lost in the past year. And we started 2023 with two big losses in rap. Gangsta Boo was the only woman in 3-6 Mafia. They revolutionized Southern hip hop. She was just 43 when she died on New Year's Day. I like the candlesticks and crucifix up at the tech place. The devil's daughter, Gangsta Boo, is out to catch a case. Just one month later, one of the most innovative groups in hip-hop lost a founding member. De La Soul's David Jalakur, a.k.a. Trugoy the Dove. What I do ain't make-believe, people say I sit and try, but when it comes to being De La, it's just me, myself, and I. Christmas is still in the air, and one of the most unusual holiday songs came from the late Shane McGowan, the Irish punk band The Pogues. It was Christmas Eve, babe, in the drunk tank. Another Irish legend died this past year. Sinead O'Connor pushed back against many of the music industry's expectations and still landed one of the biggest hits of 1990. He was one of the great harmony singers in rock 
history. David Crosby was the voice of the 1960s California sound with the Birds and Crosby, Stills and Nash. If I had ever been it before, I would probably know just what to do. She was the voice behind the Grammy winner for Record of the Year in 1965. Astro Gilberto introduced a lot of Americans to Brazilian bossa nova. This year, parrot heads lost their leader. Jimmy Buffett's music made you feel sand between your toes wherever you listened. He was 76. This summer, the guitarist for The Band left us. Robbie Robertson also wrote this absolute classic. There's really no way to emphasize this enough. Popular music owes a debt of gratitude to the Isley Brothers. Rudolph Isley died this fall. We lost a couple of America's greatest songwriters. From the Brill Building, Cynthia Wilde co-wrote songs like On Broadway, We Gotta Get Out of This Place, and this one for the Righteous Brothers. And Burt Bacharach co-wrote so many chart toppers. Raindrops keep falling on my head. That's what friends are for. Close to you and this one. Cause each time I see you, I break down and cry. Harry Belafonte was so much more than a singer. He started his career as an actor, then became one of the leading voices of the civil rights movement. He died this year at the age of 96. Tony Bennett was also 96 when he died this year. Bennett was one of the most expressive singers of his day, and his day lasted more than seven decades. I left my heart in San Francisco. Two of the greatest players in jazz died this past year. Wayne Shorter changed the sound of jazz with the fusion band Weather Report. Before that, he wrote for and played with Miles Davis. And Ahmad Jamal kept the jazz trio format vibrant in the 1960s. Ryoichi Sakamoto died this spring at the age of 71. He started his career playing electronic music, but became a force as a composer of delicate film scores.
Two performers who broke racial barriers in classical music died this year. Mezzo-soprano Grace Bumbry became the first black woman to perform at Germany's prestigious Bayreuth Festival. And Andre Watts was one of the most celebrated concert pianists of the 1960s and 70s. In January, we lost a man who inspired and confounded guitarists around the world, Jeff Beck. That same month, Tom Verlaine died. In the 1970s, he led one of the breakthrough bands of New York's punk scene, Television. Hesitating. And we have just enough time to honor one more voice. She was without a doubt the queen of rock and roll. The great Tina Turner died in May. Just a few of the legends of music who left us in 2023. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next. Then coming up at 7.45 on WBMR's Morning Edition, why ballet fans brave sub-zero temperatures for a chance to see the Nutcracker at Moscow's famed Bolshoi Theater. It's 7.29. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Russia launched more than 100 missiles and drones at targets across Ukraine overnight. At least 16 people were killed. Dozens more were wounded in a large-scale attack. The BBC's James Waterhouse says cities reporting damage include the capital, Kyiv. It was a night of sirens followed by a dawn which brought three powerful explosions. They made the windows rattle. Black smoke is billowing from what we are told is a warehouse near the centre of the city. Kiev's mayor said that people are reportedly trapped under rubble after the attacks. This is a coordinated, large-scale strike by Russia, with the cities of Lviv in the west, Sumy in the north, Kharkiv in the northeast and Odessa in the south all being targeted. Maine's Secretary of State is barring former President Donald Trump from the state's presidential primary ballot. David Becker leads the Center for Election Innovation and Research. It's very similar to the reasoning that the Colorado Supreme Court used. She found that Donald Trump had engaged in an insurrection based on his actions in the aftermath of the 2020 election leading up to the January 6th attack on the Capitol, and that therefore he was disqualified from the presidency under the 14th Amendment. He was speaking to NPR's Morning Edition. The Trump campaign says it will appeal. 
This is NPR News. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. A new overflow family shelter in Cambridge is now open. The shelter is located in a former courthouse on Cambridge Street. It has the space to house up to 70 families. Mike Connolly is a state representative for Cambridge. He says he expects the shelter to reach full capacity in the coming days. It's becoming clear there will probably be a need for additional safety net family shelters of this kind. And I think we can be proud here in Cambridge that we are setting the example for how the state could set up additional similar facilities in other locations. Connolly says most community members have voiced support for the shelter and families in need of housing. Boston police are working to identify the person who robbed a postal worker in Dorchester yesterday. Officials say the letter carrier was robbed at gunpoint near Talbot and Wells Avenues just after 5.30 p.m. The Boston Globe reports this is the second attack on a Boston-area postal worker this week. On Wednesday, a worker was robbed by two people in Randolph. A new exhibit at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston highlights leaders of the Black Panther Party who were previously overlooked. As WBWAR's Ariel Gray reports, it goes beyond well-known male leaders like Huey P. Newton and Fred Hampton to focus on women in the organization. Cambridge native Stephen Shames became the official photographer for the Black Panther Party in 1965. The exhibit Comrade Sisters showcases 27 of his photographs. Curator Karen Haas says the photos show the role women played, from registering voters to hosting free medical clinics. That so many of these women who really were not necessarily uh, recognized for the work they were doing, that sort of the community outreach, this idea of Black power as really representing giving a power to the everyday person. Comrade Sisters is at the MFA through June 24th. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Ariel Gray. It's 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Revision Energy. Sunbug Solar is now part of Revision Energy, a solar installer committed to fighting climate change in New England. Sunbugsolar.com. The Celtics clinched a six-point victory in overtime against the Detroit Pistons. That came after the Seas were down by 21 points in the first half. Final score was 128-122. to The Pistons' losing streak is now at 28 games. The Celtics will welcome the Toronto Raptors to the Garden tonight at 7.30. The Bruins are off tonight. They'll skate with the New Jersey Devils here in Boston tomorrow evening. Overcast today, it'll be in the mid-40s and there's a chance of fat showers and fog. Low 40s tonight with more rain possible. Tomorrow back to the mid-40s, it'll be mostly cloudy and there's a chance of rain in the morning. Skies finally clear on Sunday, we'll have a sunny day in the low 40s. It's 40 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. From the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. 
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Los Angeles, California. Now, if you subscribe to Amazon Video, you might have noticed a lump of coal in your inbox recently, a notice that movies and TV shows on Prime Video are getting ads starting January 29th. Amazon began talking about a change like this earlier in the year. It eliminates the platform's long-standing commercial-free policy for streaming video, something many customers have grown very accustomed to. Here to tell us more about what's driving the change and what it means for streamers is NPR TV critic Eric Deggins. Eric, I stream. I'm sure you stream. Most of us stream. What does this mean for us? Well, of course, Amazon's not the first streamer to place ads in their content library, but when some other streaming services like Netflix wanted to feature ads inside their programming, they created a cheaper membership. Amazon's basically converting everyone who has Amazon Prime, which includes services beyond streaming, into an ad-supported streaming membership. So if you do nothing, then on January 29th, you'll begin to see what they're calling limited advertisements in movies and films. They say that there'll be fewer ads than on most broadcast cable TV or other streaming services. Can I opt out of these ads? Well, to keep your commercial free experience, you have to sign up for a different tier and pay an extra $2.99 per month. Now, if you've got a current Amazon Prime membership, you're already paying about $15 per month or $139 if you pay a lump sum annually. Now, there's some people who pay just for access to Prime Video streaming alone. That's about $9 a month, and they still have to pay that extra $2.99 to avoid commercials. All right, paying more, no ads. Um, mm -hmm. I always wondered about this, Eric. Why not just raise the prices for everyone and avoid ads <laughs> altogether. I mean, it seems to make sense to me. Well, my hunch is that it comes down to a few things. First, streaming services know that when they raise prices, that can make people cancel memberships. That's called churn. Now, Netflix had a serious crisis in 2022, for example, when they saw a dip in subscriptions right around when they raised their fees. Amazon's strategy means that most subscribers won't see their fees go up if they do nothing, which might limit churn. Now, another challenge that some of these streamers have when they start these ad-supported uh, subscriptions is getting people to sign up for them in the first place. Now, Amazon's strategy ensures that a lot of Amazon Prime subscribers will probably see the advertisements, which might allow them to sell the ads at a higher price and attract more advertisers. And finally, if they don't create a cheaper subscription fee, a tier, then Amazon also isn't cutting into its potential revenue quite as much. Now, as you pointed out, uh, Amazon Prime subscribers get a lot more than just uh, access to streaming video. Does that make it tougher to access the benefits to Amazon? Well, Amazon says this is about increasing investment in content, but because Amazon Prime members get access to other features like free shipping, it's tough to know how much of that fee actually funds streaming. Now, we've seen competing services like Netflix, Disney+, Hulu raise their subscription fees, create ad-supported subscriptions, crack down on password sharing and bundle services, all in an attempt to squeeze more revenue out of subscribers while minimizing churn. Amazon's latest move isn't that surprising. It's kind of a step back to the old models of ad-supported platforms like cable TV and broadcasting, and it suggests that higher fees and more ads are something that most streaming customers are going to have to contend with in 2024. Uh, okay, that's NPR mm. TV critic Eric Deggins. Thanks, Eric. Thank you. And we want to note that Amazon is a financial supporter of NPR. In his recent year-end address to the nation, Russian President Vladimir Putin called for patience with the war in Ukraine, saying the country would meet its goals. But in Moscow, the war can often seem far away. NPR's Charles Maines found Russians determined to show patience of another kind by waiting for tickets to a ballet. 
Ultimately, you can blame it on math. 1,700, that's how many people fit in Moscow's fabled Bolshoi Theater. Yet there are just 22 holiday performances of The Nutcracker, a beloved 19th-century ballet by Russian composer Pyotr Tchaikovsky, heard here in a Bolshoi performance from 2014. So, 1,700 seats, 22 performances, which leaves around 37,000 Nutcracker tickets for a city of some 12 million, meaning at the Bolshoi, as in life, there are winners, but more often, losers. Outside the theater, hundreds of Russians brave sub-zero temperatures deep into the night in hopes of securing their golden ticket. We've been standing here for a long time, since nine this morning, says Andrei, a Moscow University student who, like everyone in this story, agreed to speak on the condition his last name not appear in the American media. But we'll stay until the end, he adds, because the nutcracker is worth it. It's such a beautiful ballet. I just wanted a chance to see it in my old age, says Raya, a retired cleaner who's lived in Moscow most of her life but never been to a Nutcracker production. And this gets to another issue. The Bolshoi sells only 400 Nutcracker tickets per day. To get them, you have to stand in line. Most people I spoke with were on their second try after a melee broke out the night before. They opened the gates and the crowd just shoved us out of the way, says Zhenya, mother of two who works in the aviation industry. If people were more cultured, they would have seen that pensioners and others have been waiting all day long, she adds. Unfortunately, that's not the society we live in. On this night, riot police were on hand, but they mostly sat warm in their bus. The engine kicking acrid fumes over the same crowd police were in theory there to protect. If all of this, ballet, beauty, suffering and scarcity sound like Russian tropes, well, here's another. No corruption. What, you really think someone's not making money off of all of this, says Zhenya, glancing towards the front of the line? I'm supposed to stand here for 10 hours, admitted Beck, one of several migrant workers from Central Asia I met at the head of the queue. <laughs> He's a hired gun, said one of his friends, as he and Beck gave a smile. In fact, people kept telling me all the ways a small fortune can be made for those looking to sell a spot in line. Russia, of course, is at war and under heavy Western sanctions because of it. But no one seemed to want to talk about Ukraine, and maybe with good reason. These days, the wrong opinion can easily land you in jail. Still, the conflict was there, lurking just off stage. As I joked that an endless line felt like something out of the USSR, Riot, a retired pensioner, told me she really did have nostalgia for the Soviet days. Honestly, things were so much calmer then. Today, there's that little war. Her voice trailing off. Andre, the university student, told me that during hard times, Russians gravitated towards art. To stand in line and talk to people, to listen to music and watch ballet, it brings me joy, he said. Meanwhile, Zhenya, the aviation worker, said if there was ever a time to see the Nutcracker, it was now. Russia cut off from Europe and traveled to other destinations, astronomically expensive. You can't go anywhere these days, she says. And so, with New Year's just around the corner, she returns to the line, hoping for a different kind of ticket to better times. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow.
This is NPR News. Coming up at the top of the hour here on WBWAR's Morning Edition, we'll look at what led Maine to become the second state to bar former President Donald Trump from its primary ballot. Cloudy with a chance of rain today. We may also see some spotty fog. Temperatures will rise to the mid-40s. Those fall just a bit to the low 40s tonight and more showers and fog are possible. Mostly cloudy in mid-40s tomorrow with another chance of rain. Sky's clear for a sunny day on Sunday. It'll be in the low 40s. It's 40 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include the Christian Science Plaza. Start first night with a 2 p.m. organ concert and free tour of the How Do You See the World experience. Visit christianscience.com slash first night. After four decades in business, the nonprofit Improv Boston will shut down for good this Sunday. The Cambridge Comedy Theater announced earlier this month that money problems caused in part by the pandemic left it without a viable financial path moving forward. Managing Director Matt Laidlaw says Improv Boston's demise should be a warning to people that smaller arts groups need public support. Smaller theaters, they need you in the audiences, just sort of like mid-sized and small venues. We thrive on having you in the venue so we can do our job, and we love doing our job. The organization says it was only able to survive the last few years in part with cultural grants and pandemic assistance loans. More than 18,000 jobs were added to the Boston metro area in November. That's according to new state employment data. Officials say holiday hiring helped boost those numbers. An Indian restaurant chain plans to open its first location in the state next week. The Telegram and Gazette reports Eggholic will open in Shrewsbury off Route 9. The restaurant's menu is inspired by Indian street food. It has 15 other locations across the U.S. and Canada. It's 745. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from BritBox with Archie, based on the true story of Hollywood icon Cary Grant a new original drama starring Jason Isaacs. Archie, now streaming at BritBox.com slash NPR. From Procter & Gamble, maker of ZQuil Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at ZQuil.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at MacFound.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Michelle Martin. With the clock running down on 2023, we thought this would be a good time to take a look at how the U.S. economy did this year and what could lie ahead for 2024. For that, we turn, as we so often do, to David Wessel. He is director of the Hutchins Center at the Brookings Institution. Good morning, David. Good morning, Michelle. So how did the U.S. economy turn out differently than you and, frankly, most economic forecasters expected? A lot of forecasters expected that we'd be in a recession by now or heading into one, and I confess I did too. The thinking was that the Fed would keep raising interest rates to bring down inflation until the economy cried uncle and unemployment rose sharply. In June 2022, former Treasury Secretary Larry Summers told us that the unemployment rate would have to rise above 5% to bring down inflation. In October 2022, Bloomberg said its own forecasting model put the odds of a 2023 recession at 100%. 
And in February 2023, the Congressional Budget Office predicted unemployment would be at 5.1% by now. Well, the Fed raised interest rates a lot. The inflation rate came down, but the recession didn't arrive, and the unemployment rate didn't go up very much. At last report, unemployment was a historically low 3.7%. And over the first 11 months of 2023, the economy added 233,000 jobs a month, far more than most forecasters thought possible. But how did so many forecasters get it so wrong? Well, Fed Chair Jay Powell was asked just that question earlier this month, and here's what he said. We actually had a very strong year, and that was a combination of strong demand, but also real gains on the supply side. So this was the year when labor force participation picked up, where immigration picked up, where the distortions to supply and demand from the pandemic, you know, the shortages and the bottlenecks really began to unwind. In other words, the Fed and a lot of other folks were surprised that the economy's capacity to supply goods and services expanded so much, even beyond resolving the COVID-related kinks in the supply chain. So with that important caveat that a lot of forecasters got 2023 wrong in a way that we're not sorry that they got wrong. I mean, the news is better than a lot of people thought. What's the outlook for next year? Today, the prospects for a soft landing where inflation comes down towards the Fed's 2 percent target without a recession are looking pretty good. But 2024 is likely to bring slower growth than this year and a small increase in the employment rate and probably a slowdown in consumer spending as the last of the money saved during the pandemic is spent. It won't be good for everybody, of course, but the outlook is far better than many forecasters were predicting just a few months ago. In fact, nearly all the surprises in the economy have been good ones, and that could persist in 2024. Hmm. That would be very nice. But I have to ask, what could go wrong? Well, there's always a possibility of some geopolitical shock. Already we're seeing the war in the Middle East disrupting shipping in the Red Sea. There could be an intensified trade war with China, political violence or terrorism in the U.S. But if you look at purely economic risks, unfortunately, there's a long list of things that could go wrong. The Fed could wait too long to cut interest rates and unintentionally cause a recession, or it could be surprised and see that inflation is more virulent than expected and end up keeping rates higher for longer. Congress could trigger unwelcome spending cuts if it can't agree soon on a budget. Markets have been ebullient lately, but they're fickle, and that could change. And banks have been getting pickier about to whom they lend, and that could starve the economy for credit. And finally, there's the hard-to-predict matter of consumer and business sentiment. So far, consumers have been spending readily, even as they tell pollsters they're worried about the economy. But if lots of consumers get nervous at once, that can slow an already slowing economy. That's David Wessel. He's director of the Hutchins Center at the Brookings Institution and a familiar voice. A morning edition. Thanks, David, and Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, Michelle. This is NPR News. It's a Friday on WBUR. Coming up at 8.20, Californians are facing another electricity rate hike, in part to pay for power lines to be buried to prevent wildfires. The rising rates are pushing low-income residents to the financial brink. It's 7.50. Looking for the perfect gift for WBUR this year? Well, of course you are. How about your old car? It's Ray from Car Talk. You know, when you donate your old car or truck to WBUR, they'll turn it into the news coverage we'll all need next year. It's quick and easy, and you might even get a tax deduction. Start your car donation now at WBUR.org. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Friday morning. At least 16 people were killed in Russian airstrikes in cities across Ukraine this morning. 
Maine has become the second state to ban former President Donald Trump from its 2024 primary ballot. And a federal judge is giving the okay to a new Georgia voting map drawn by the state's Republican-led legislature. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include Thayer Academy, an independent co-ed day school since 1877, inspiring students in grades 5 through 12. Upper school open house January 4th. Thayer.org. A chance of rain this morning. Patchy fog is also possible through mid-afternoon. Otherwise overcast today in the mid-40s. Temperatures only fall a bit tonight to the low 40s. And we may see some more showers. Another chance of rain tomorrow. It'll be cloudy and back in the mid-40s. Skies finally clear on New Year's Eve. It'll be sunny and in the low 40s. It's 41 degrees in Boston. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Michelle Martin. Four years ago, Ghana launched a campaign to welcome people from the African diaspora back to the continent of their ancestors. The country has even created a settlement offering free land to transplant so they can build homes and businesses. But, as NPR's Emmanuel Akinwotu reports, that settlement has become a source of bitterness. Dozens of houses are dotted across Pan-African village a rural settlement enveloped by miles of lush farmland and palm trees near the Atlantic coast. Nobody has ever lived there before. It was Ireland. Lenville Skyers says he was the first to settle here three years ago and says he'll never leave. We meet in the lounge of his six-bedroom home and guest house. I was born on the island of Jamaica, a couple months before 1950, right? So I'm an old man now, or oldish. He lived and worked in Canada for over 40 years, but never felt he really belonged. We as blacks and native people are regarded as second-class citizens. We've reached a stage now where there is an option to find land, countries where you can be totally free. So when he retired, he considered starting a new life elsewhere. And then, in 2019, Ghana's president, Nana Akufo-Addo, launched a major campaign. Fellow Ghanaians, we have dubbed this year the Year of Return. The Year of Return was a call to the African diaspora to come back to the continent and to Ghana. Thousands of black people like Skyers arrived, encouraged to visit or even settle. Then he found out about a project offering free land in a settlement within the town of Asebu, along Ghana's Cape Coast. So we're walking through a dirt road that parts through this 5,000-acre expanse of lush farmland. That's Pan-African village. That's a diaspora settlement donated or offered by a local traditional ruler to any black diasporas wanting to come back to Ghana. All around me, there are clusters of homes that have already been built and many of them under construction dotted all across this vast expanse of land. Moyen Vivili is among a small community of people living permanently in Pan-African village. She was born in Jamaica and then lived most of her life in the US. Then she moved from Atlanta, Georgia last year and soon after, she says she was given a new title. My name is Na Buhaforiena Oyen Mempese Tulu I. My title is um, Diaspora development queen for Ghana. I meet her in her living room, sitting on a wooden throne, her feet on a stool that rests on a lion skin rug. 
She's dressed in kente fabric, traditional Ghanaian clothing, draped over her shoulder. She says she was crowned by chiefs from the Ga ethnic group. I was concerned about my retirement and the money that I was going to get for my social security could not pay a light bill or water rate. But things turned around on a visit to Ghana. She acquired two plots of land and built a large two-story house last year. It was a salvation for me. I felt free. I ask her what she thinks about life here. In Ghana, people are humble. They don't need much to, to live. Food is the most important to a lot of people in Ghana. You understand? Okay, so they don't even need a fork. They use their hands. I mean, it sounds like poverty, but when you think about it, how much do we really need to survive? A lot of local people that we've spoken to feel like the, the diaspora have an advantage over them when they come here because they have foreign currency, they have access to land that they don't have access to. Yes, they should, they should own. If you're here as a Ghanaian, you should be able to own your own land and build your own home. So it's not our fault. We didn't get anything free. But the local traditional ruler puts it differently, from his palace on a hill overlooking the town. Okatachi Dr. Amanfi VII is known as the paramount chief of Asebu and created the Pan-African Village project there. I wanted to show to our diaspora brothers that we care for them. They are from Africa. It's among a growing number of diaspora settlements that have emerged since the year of return. My last check showed that we have about 560 people who have already taken land. The land is free, and the only charges are what he calls administration fees of about $1,000 per plot. I ask him whether local people in Asebu have had similar opportunities. Every Ghanaian must have access to land. Yeah, so no, irrespective of whether you are a writer or whatever, you must have access to land. Land is life. But he evades the question. And some, like 59-year-old Kwesi Otubensil, have even had their land taken away. So we have been farming there for, 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 for so many years, for generations and for generations. We meet outside his modest home with other farmers and members of his extended family. I, I used to farm um, lime, coconuts, oranges, that it, it has been destroyed. They are among hundreds who used to farm on the land that belonged to their family for at least four generations. Until the chief argued that as a traditional ruler of the town, he had the power to give it away. The family refute this and have taken him to court. They show me a copy of a high court order suspending any construction there, but the construction hasn't stopped. 44-year-old Daniel Kweku is another farmer in the family. He says when they went to challenge the diaspora's building there, they were threatened with guns. Some of the diasporans told us they have guns at their places, so if they went there again, they would shoot us. And now he's too afraid to go back there again. And he says they feel they've been hunted from their land. 68-year-old Ebuseben Kojobedu is the head of the family. He says when he first heard about the settlement, he supported it until he was told his land of 123 acres would be given away. He says the chief told him the land was not sold, but given away to the diaspora for free, so he wouldn't be paid for it. No compensation. It means if I don't fight for it, my family property is going to lost. But like many legal battles over land, 
the case will likely take many years, all while more settlements are set to emerge, offering the dream of a new life in Africa. Emmanuel Akinwotu, NPR News, Cape Coast, Ghana. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. Our theme music was inspired by B.J. Lederman. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Martinez. Cloudy in mid-40s today with a chance of rain and patchy fog. Mostly cloudy tonight in the low 40s. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy in mid-40s. There's a slight chance of showers in the morning. It's 40 degrees in Boston, and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. WBUR supporters include Sincere Foundation which supports organizations that provide food security, housing stability, and safe spaces, and envisions a future where everyone has the opportunity to celebrate, recognize milestones, and honor memories. Sincere Foundation. Learn more and see if your program qualifies at Sincere.com. I'm WBUR City Space Director Amy McDonald, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 92.7 WBUA Tisbury and 89.1 WBUH Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Former President Donald Trump's campaign says it'll fight a decision to bar him from Maine's primary ballot. It's Friday, December 29th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shinoi. Coming up, Polish truckers block traffic at the Ukraine-Poland border to protest Ukrainian businesses coming into the EU. Also this hour. Today's unpaid energy bill is tomorrow's eviction notice, and that cycle is a very real one. Californians who are already struggling with rising housing costs are bracing for another electricity rate hike. And how a long-abandoned New Bedford firehouse is inspiring students of architecture searching for climate-friendly solutions. When you revive something, like when you layer future on history, it becomes present and it's the most beautiful thing. Cloudy in 40s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Officials in Ukraine say Russia has launched its largest aerial assault this year. NPR's Hanna Palmarenko reports from Kyiv 16 people have been killed and nearly 100 others have been wounded. Russia launched its most massive air attack on Ukraine this morning, using about 160 weapon units of different kinds, including drones, as well as ballistic, supersonic and cruise missiles. Ukrainian officials say air defense forces shot down most of them. The attack damaged civilian infrastructure of major Ukrainian cities across the country, targeting hospitals, schools, residential buildings, warehouses, and a subway station. NPR's Hannah Palomarenko reporting. Thousands of Palestinian civilians are fleeing central Gaza. The Israeli military is continuing to bombard that part of the enclave. The Palestinians are moving to southern Gaza, but that area is already extremely overcrowded. Maine is removing Donald Trump from the state's 2024 presidential primary ballot. A ruling from Colorado Supreme Court earlier this month resulted in the same decision. As NPR's Windsor Johnston reports, both states cite Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Maine Secretary of State, a Democrat, said she concluded that Trump used a false narrative or election fraud to inflame his supporters 
and direct them to the Capitol to prevent the certification of the 2020 election and the peaceful transfer of power. Maine is the second state to remove the former president from the primary ballot. The Colorado State Supreme Court issued a similar ruling last week that will likely end up in front of the U.S. Supreme Court in the coming weeks. The Trump campaign issued a statement pledging to file a legal objection. Other states have similar challenges pending. Windsor Johnston, NPR News. Despite most indicators showing an improving economy, corporate bankruptcies are surging. As NPR's Bobby Allen reports, experts say one major factor is all the debt the companies took on when interest rates were near zero during the pandemic. Many corporations took out big loans and expanded fast in 2020 when borrowing costs were extremely low. But as interest rates rose in recent years, some companies with large loans ran out of money and weren't able to borrow. That has led to an uptick in corporate bankruptcies. According to S&P Global Markets, nearly 600 companies filed for bankruptcy this year. That's one of the highest rates in the past decade. Many of the companies, like Rite Aid, Bed Bath & Beyond, and scooter company Bird, entered what's known as Chapter 11 bankruptcy. That's a process aimed at cutting expenses, restructuring debt, and emerging a healthier company. But some firms go under in the process. Bobby Allen. NPR News. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. There's a push to raise the state's minimum wage to $20 an hour. This year marked the final increase in an earlier deal that made the minimum wage $15 an hour. But some groups like the Raise Up Coalition say that isn't enough for people to live on. WBOR's Zeninjor and Wameka reports. The legislature is considering two bills that would raise the minimum hourly wage to $20 by 2027 and make sure it keeps up with inflation. Harris Grumman of the Raise Up Coalition says the increase would benefit a million workers in essential jobs. We are going to have a crisis of outmigration of the workforce we need to keep our economy strong, keep our communities strong. And so we have to treat the workers well to treat ourselves well. And that's a very urgent thing. And that's why we need to really act on raising wages closer to a living wage. Critics say increasing the minimum wage will make it harder for small businesses to operate and will pass on more costs to customers. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Zeninjor and Wameka. The Winthrop police lieutenant facing child rape charges was formerly a foster parent. That's according to officials close to the investigation who spoke to the Boston Globe. James Feely pleaded not guilty to the charges on Wednesday. The Department of Children and Families tells the Globe it's investigating the allegations. It says there were no children in Feely's home at the time of his arrest. The tea will be free after 8 p.m. on New Year's Eve. MBTA officials say they want to promote safe celebration on the holiday. All subway lines will also be open until 3 a.m. Commuter rail trains will operate out of north and south stations until after midnight. On New Year's Day, the tea will run on a weekend schedule. The Boston Public Library is celebrating another successful year of lending books to people around the city. The library checked out 5.5 million physical and digital items in 2023. The most borrowed book of the year was Lessons in Chemistry, a novel by Bonnie Garmus. Bailey Watroba with Boston Public Library says many of this year's top borrowed books were widely shared on social media platforms like TikTok and Instagram. 
that it's giving a new visibility into the fact that people are reading and what they are reading. Um, and it's become kind of cool to share the kind of books that you're interested in. So I think it's a really great way for people to connect and learn about new books that they might ha- not have heard about before. Other top titles include Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabrielle Zevin and Spare by Prince Harry, Duke of Sussex. It's 8.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Heifer International, where people can donate animal gifts like goats, chickens, or sheep to struggling families to help them create sustainable futures. Learn more at heifer.org NPR. The Celtics were down 21 points in the first half against the Detroit Pistons last night, but they came back to win 128-122. to The Pistons now have a record 28-game losing streak. The Celtics have a home game tonight against Toronto. The Bruins are off tonight. They host the New Jersey Devils tomorrow night at the Garden. Spotty fog and showers are possible this morning. Otherwise cloudy today with a high in the mid-40s. Tonight, a chance of showers and some patchy fog. Temperatures will fall just a bit to the low 40s. Tomorrow, the clouds stick around and there's a chance of more showers. Highs will be in the upper 40s. The sun returns on Sunday. We'll have clear skies and highs in the low 40s. It's 41 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez in Los Angeles, California. And I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. Russia has carried out its largest air assault yet on Ukraine. More than 100 missiles fell on cities across the country, including the capital, Kyiv. Targets included a shopping mall, a maternity hospital, and multiple apartment buildings. Ukrainian officials say the new Western-supplied air defense system shot down most of the missiles still... More than a dozen people were killed. NPR's Alyssa Nadwarnit joins us from Ukraine's eastern border with more. Hello, Alyssa. Hi, Michelle. So what did Ukrainians wake up to this morning? Well, all across Ukraine this morning, there were missiles and drones. Lviv was hit, Dnipro, Kiev, Odessa, so many cities. Ukraine's Air Force says that it's the largest air attack since the full invasion began in February of 2022. According to Ukraine's Ministry of Internal Affairs, more than 16 people were killed, over 100 wounded. And those numbers are rising as more people are being discovered in rubble. It it sounds like a large number of civilian targets were hit. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, the largest number of those that were killed happened in the city of Dnipro, where Uh, The attack hit a shopping mall and a maternity hospital. And Dnipro, you know, is a relatively quiet city in central Ukraine. In Kyiv, the capital, a factory was targeted. And uh, the mayor there said rescuers were still searching for people buried under the debris. In a statement, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said that targets all all across Ukraine included things like educational institutions, schools, Hmm. high-rise buildings, private houses, and even a commercial warehouse. Is Ukraine doing something in response? Well, Zelensky said in his statement that Ukraine would respond, though he didn't provide any clear details. The Minister of Foreign Affairs said he wanted the sound of explosions in Ukraine to be heard all across the world. I mean, this is kind of a moment where... Uh, Folks here are worried about kind of fatigue of this war. And and today they said, look, this is nowhere near over. And Russia is certainly nowhere near, you know, discussions of of stopping. 
the attacks by Russia today were intended to test and honestly to drain Ukraine's air defense systems. Like these are the Western supplied air defense systems that include the Patriot system, which was provided by the U.S. Now, you know, one silver lining here is that the systems are working. They limited the damage. They shot down the majority of those missiles. That's according to Zelensky. But, Michelle, it's been a quiet fall in Ukraine, and and that's kind of allowed Russia to stockpile this barrage of weapons. Ukrainian officials are bracing for more attacks like the one today to continue. I mean, they this is what they feared, that this would happen during winter, that this would hit critical infrastructure, civilian infrastructure. I mean, even now as we speak, Michelle, there are air raid sirens in most of the country all across Ukraine again. And, and the Air Force is saying the threat alert remains extremely, extremely high. That is NPR's Alyssa Nadworny. She is on Ukraine's eastern border. Alyssa, thanks for this reporting, and we do hope you will stay safe. Thank you, Michelle. Always a pleasure to chat. North Korea says it is preparing for war with the United States. State media reported that leader Kim Jong-un was ordering accelerated military preparations to counter what he called unprecedented confrontational moves by the U.S. Jenny Town is a senior fellow at the Stimson Center. It's a foreign affairs think tank where she directs its 38 North program that focuses on North Korea. And she's here with us to talk about all this. Jenny Town, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So I want to mention here that we have heard similar rhetoric from North Korea before. So I have two questions about this. Why now? And how concerned should the U.S. be about this? I mean, you're right. We have heard a lot of this, especially towards the end of the year now. I think we need to keep in mind a couple of things. One, they're doing sort of their State of the Union sort of address here at their um, at the Workers' Party meeting that's going on right now at the plenary. Um, And wrapping up what they see as what they've accomplished for the year, what their challenges are going to be, and what their goals for the next years are going to be as well. Um, It's important to keep that in mind. (laughs) But also the the complaints that they have are are pretty consistent of um, the way that the U.S. and South Korea have been doing back-to-back military, large-scale, live-fire military exercises for months on end. Um, the increase in, you know, nuclear consultation, the things that are going on with that the North Koreans consider to be practicing war and that they are sort of mirroring that language um, back to the U.S. So that's what he meant by unprecedented confrontational moves. Yes. So it's a lot of the more the U.S. and South Korea talk about nuclear consultation, Um, And the nuclear exercises and things like this, um, the more we hear this rhetoric out of North Korea, that they're they're sort of doing the same. If you're going to plan for this, we're going to plan for it, too. Mm. How plausible is it that North Korea might have the ability to ramp up a military that poses a real threat? Well, you know, (laughs) it definitely has the ability to ramp up um, how much of a threat that really is at the end of the day. you know, is questionable, but how much of a threat are we willing to tolerate either? Hmm. Um, You know, the geography requires very little um, to be damaging, right? 
And, and so here's the question is, you know, as they're ramping up, is it, are they actually ramping up for war or are they ramping up rhetoric? And I think that's the, a big open question these days. So is there any scenario under which North Korea could be persuaded to give up its nuclear weapons? Or is that just wishful thinking? Well, <laughs> these days it's wishful thinking. Um, we have crossed a line where the North Koreans see their nuclear weapons program in a very different way than they did in 2017, for instance, um, and, or even in 2018, where they were willing to negotiate about the nuclear program. The difference now is that they've enshrined it into law, as well as now a constitutional amendment mandating the continued development of WMD. So everything dealing with um, North Korea's nuclear program going forward is going to be that much harder. And the real challenge here is how do you convince an insecure country um, to disarm? We're not preventing them from getting nuclear weapons. They have nuclear weapons. Mm. The question is now is how do we convince them um, that they're better off without nuclear weapons. And certainly the more we remind them that we could destroy them at any time, you know, with our nuclear weapons, the harder to make that case. Mm, that's fascinating. This is really helpful and interesting. How would you assess the progress of its nuclear program? It's made leaps and bounds. It, you know, it really did set goals. It, it knocked them down one by one. And now with the increased cooperation with Russia, it has the potential to do a lot more. That's Jenny Town. She's a senior fellow at the Stimson Center. That's a foreign affairs think tank where she, as you just heard, focuses on North Korea. Jenny Town, thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. On some corners of the internet, 2023 was a year of ChatGPT, Barbenheimer, and Girl Dinner. That's a snack plate in case you miss that one. So what will the internet bring us in 2024? We asked a few people about that. Casey Newton edits Platformer. That's a tech newsletter. And he thinks big changes are coming to online dating. So you look at a country that has a lot of lonely people in it. You look at a country where everyone has a smartphone and access to these apps. I think you're going to see a huge surge of people who are developing intimate relationships with AI chatbots over the next year. Newton says one reason AI dating isn't already everywhere is that app stores such as Apple's restrict apps that let chatbots have uh, spicy conversations with users. But as soon as people figure out a workaround for that, you're going to see a lot of people with AI girlfriends, boyfriends, and non-binary friends. At the same time, we may see a retreat from putting everything out there online. That's according to Fortessa Latifi, a journalist who covers internet trends. I'm a millennial. My parents were like barely on the internet. So for me, it was fun and rebellious to like overshare online. But Latifi predicts the pendulum will swing the other way in 2024. For kids who are in Gen Alpha, they've been overshared online. And now they're starting to think, wait, is this what I would have chosen for myself? And Adam Alexic, who goes by the etymology nerd online, thinks younger generations will continue to reshape the way we speak, especially online. We're in this new era where words are evolving at a faster rate than ever before. Yeah, words like riz, recognized by the Oxford English Dictionary as word of the year, means charm or what Gen Alpha's grandparents used to call mojo. Gen Z is generating most new slang now, Alexic says, but soon there will be a new boss in town. As Gen Alpha gets older and gets online, they're going to be the ones creating words. They're going to be the ones with the niche in-groups that are driving etymology. 
All right, so what'll be the follow-up to Riz in 2024? We'll just have to never unplug from the internet to find out. Hey, get off the internet. Go outside. Don't, don't tell me what Go outside. Mean. I mean, after the show. That's what I meant. <laughs> Coming up on All Things Considered, it was a wild year for crypto. Mogul Sam Bankman-Fried was convicted of money laundering and fraud, and law enforcement went after one of his rivals, too. Can the industry mount a comeback? To hear the story, listen to NPR on your phone, smart speaker, or on your reliable radio. This is NPR News. Good morning. Thanks for starting your Friday with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, a federal judge in Georgia has upheld a revised congressional map that creates a new black district and protects the state's Republican seats in Congress. It's 819. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the ICA. Have an artful holiday season with acclaimed exhibitions, a family film festival, art making, and more. Plan your visit at ICABoston.org. On this week's Wait, Wait, Weird Al Yankovic explains how he came to cast Daniel Radcliffe as himself in the movie he made about his own life. The first time I saw Harry Potter, I thought, you know, someday that guy's got to play me. (laughs) I'm Peter Sagal. Weird Al plays himself in this week's show, as does Gina Davis, Karen Allen, and Instagram's Huddest Lobsterman. I, however, will be played by Stanley Tucci because the studio insisted on a name. Join us for the news quiz from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. Cloudy today. There's a chance of rain and fog. We'll have highs in the mid-40s. More showers and fog possible tonight. It'll be in the low 40s. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy with a high back in the mid-40s. There's a chance of showers in the morning. On Sunday, we finally get a sunny day. Highs will be in the low 40s. It's 41 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from the station and from the Annie E. Casey Foundation, using research and evidence to develop solutions that help families and communities create a brighter future for young people. More information is available at aecf.org. From the Langloth Foundation, supporting justice, equity, and opportunity for all people to foster and sustain safe and healthy communities. Learn more at langloth.org. From Carnegie Corporation of New York, Supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. 
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Michelle Martin. California has some of the highest energy costs in the country. Electricity rates there have nearly doubled over the past decade. And millions of residents are facing another major rate hike starting January 1st, in part to deal with the risks of wildfires. From member station KQED in San Francisco, Vanessa Arancano reports on how soaring utility bills are pushing some low-income Californians to the financial brink. This time of year, Michael Yamamura and his family have strategies for keeping their energy bills down. We can put on a sweater, use some blankets. Worst comes to worst, we're cool. It's not that bad. What Yamamura really worries about is the summertime, when energy bills are at their highest. He shares an apartment in Fresno with his brother and their mom, who has a lot of health problems. Because of that, AC is a must. So when temperatures hit triple digits, their monthly bills top $500. That makes it hard to keep up on rent. Sometimes I don't pay it until they give me the three-day notice. The 20-year-old has reason to worry about getting evicted. His family was homeless a few years ago when he was in junior high. His mom can't work because of her health. So now he and his brother, who's 23, are trying to support the family. I've been pretty terrified of ending up out on the street again. Utility costs will swallow an even bigger portion of their budget when Pacific Gas and Electric, the state's biggest utility, hikes rates in January. The increase will pay for over 1,200 miles of power lines to be buried for wildfire prevention. PG&E, which has been sued for starting fires with its equipment, has spent billions on upgrades, and that cost gets passed along to customers. Almost a third of California households report struggling to pay energy bills, what researchers call energy insecurity. The heat or eat dilemma. Diana Hernandez is a Columbia University professor who studies this. She says wildfire-related expenses and the growing energy demands that come with climate change are colliding with California's housing crisis. Today's unpaid energy bill is tomorrow's eviction notice, and that cycle is a very real one. California has programs designed to help subsidize bills and manage debt, but advocates say they're not enough. California has been ahead of other states when it comes to these soaring utility costs, according to energy experts, but it's expected to be an increasing issue for other states as well. Severin Borenstein is a UC Berkeley energy economist. We are just seeing the beginning of this, I fear. He expects other wildfire-prone states to see utility costs spike in the near future. The big question is, will they also try to pay for them by raising electricity rates, or will they cover them through the state budget or through other taxes? California so far has paid for them by raising electricity rates. And his research has found that puts a disproportionate burden on low-income customers like Yamamura and his family. You know, I'd like to pay rent on time. I'd like to have bills paid and not be hours away from getting an eviction notice, but that's where I've been at for the past few years. By this fall, Yamamura's family owed PG&E $1,300, including overdue charges. As new rate hikes go into effect, they and other customers can expect to pay around $30 to $40 more each month. And the utility is already pushing for another increase later in the year. For NPR News, I'm Vanessa Rancaño. Time now for StoryCorps. This week, a woman uncovers a family legacy about food. Growing up in Kansas City, Bernetta McKindra was surrounded by grills and smoke, but it wasn't until later in life that she learned more about her grandfather, Henry Perry. My grandmother and he divorced when 
my mother was a child, so he died in 1940, and we didn't have a lot of stories about them being together or anything. But my aunt, she said that granddad, he was the barbecue king. Yeah, Perry was known as the father of Kansas City barbecue. That's because in the early 1900s, he began selling smoked meats out of a wooden cart and is credited with creating Kansas City's iconic barbecue style. Bernetta came to StoryCorps with her friend Raymond Mabian II. He came to Kansas City when he was 15 by way of a steamship. He came alone. And so he brought with him this method. You could take these cheaper cuts of meat that was thrown out from the packing plants. Mm -hmm. You could make it be tender, make it be delicious, make it be where people stand in line and wait for it. That beautiful art of smoking that he perfected and yeah. taught other yeah. uh, barbecue legends in Kansas City, but he was the original. Right. Even though you never knew him, do you feel like you can relate to him? Oh, yes. You know, because we didn't grow up eating steaks, not having a lot of money. Uh, my mother could cook, but my auntie was a cook. Mm -hmm. She had a grill in, in her backyard. There was always barbecue there. I've had barbecue neck bones. My uncle and them would put coon out there. and right. There was a squirrel. And putting those memories together, I'm thinking, mm -hmm. yes, barbecue was always there. Yeah, I was thinking about how wonderful it is to be invited to your house and share in on those wonderful Sunday meals. That You are an excellent cook. It is in your gene pool. It's, <laughs> it's natural. And people would bring you those turkeys for Thanksgiving and Christmas. So I would smoke turkeys for holidays, and I did it for years. Yeah, we're out there in the cold, and I don't want turkey any other way. I want it smoked to perfection, and that's a beautiful testament that that legacy had transferred down. You know, not growing up with history, not so much even that it was hidden, it just wasn't recorded. I think that that plays such an important part when you know what you've come from and it's good stock. It makes you stand a little straighter. It makes you walk a little more upright mm -hmm. to say, I have a part in this, not just for my family, but it's there for us as a people. That's Bernetta McKendra and Raymond Mabian II in Kansas City, Missouri. Their interview is archived at the Smithsonian Museum of African American History and Culture and the Library of Congress. Major support for StoryCorps comes from Subaru. The Subaru Share the Love event runs through January 2nd. By year's end, Subaru and its retailers will have donated over $285 million to charity. Subaru.com slash share. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 845 on WBOR's Morning Edition. Why an abandoned firehouse in New Bedford has become a source of inspiration for architecture students searching for climate-friendly designs. It's 829. Coming to City Space on Thursday, January 4th, Dr. Pooja Lakshman discusses her new book about what she calls the Industrial Wellness Complex. Tickets are at WBUR.org slash events.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Officials in Ukraine say airstrikes carried out by Russia overnight were among the largest of the 22-month war. More than 100 missiles and drones were fired at cities across the country, including Lviv, Odessa, and the capital, Kyiv. Sixteen people were killed, dozens more wounded. Efforts are ongoing to locate people believed to be trapped in rubble. Ukraine says most of the missiles were shot down. Maine is joining Colorado in banning former President Donald Trump from the state's presidential primary ballot. The Trump campaign says it will appeal. Maine's Secretary of State cites Section 3 of the 14th Amendment in deciding Trump's actions leading up to the January 6th attack at the U.S. Capitol amounted to insurrection. NPR's Windsor Johnston has more. In a written decision, Maine Secretary of State said she concluded that Trump is ineligible to serve again because he supported or engaged in an insurrection or rebellion. The decision in Maine follows a similar ruling by the Colorado Supreme Court last week. Other states have similar challenges pending. The U.S. Supreme Court is ultimately expected to decide the legal questions about Trump's name appearing on state ballots. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. New data show the increase in migrants in Massachusetts is offsetting the drop in enrollment at Boston Public Schools. A report obtained by the Boston Globe shows that the increase kept the overall decline below 1 percent. Advocates say the district still needs to address the root cause of declining enrollment. They say those causes include the shortage of affordable housing, declining birth rates, and students failing to return to school after the pandemic. Massachusetts is well behind its goal for installing heat pumps in homes. Those pumps use electricity instead of fossil fuels. The Cape Cod Times reports the state is currently only at 1 percent of its goal. The state needs nearly 3 million homes to install the technology to help reach net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. Officials say the low number of installations stems from the varying costs of heat pumps. The Krista McAuliffe Center at Framingham State University is getting a makeover for its 30th anniversary. It's named after the astronaut and teacher who died in the Challenger space shuttle disaster in 1986. The center has focused on science since it opened, but WBUR's Dan Guzman reports the renovation will adjust that focus. The centerpiece of the $8 million project is an update to the planetarium, which will soon host dance performances and concerts is now an environment where we can work at the intersection of the arts and science and it's the best performances in both areas. That's Irena Poro, the center's director. She hopes more work can be done on climate change and environmental justice, a mission she believes McAuliffe would approve. Let's remind ourselves that Krista was a teacher that taught social studies and history. She really valued civic engagement. There will be a public grand reopening on January 27th, one day before the anniversary of the Challenger disaster. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Dan Guzman. The waterfront ice sculpture stroll kicks off on Central Wharf later today. Around the New England Aquarium, visitors can watch artists carve sculptures shaped like sea lions. Over 30 locations are participating in the ice sculpture stroll this weekend. It's 8.33. WBUR supporters include Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters and stunning dancing will enchant audiences of all ages through December 31st 
Tickets at bostonballet.org. The Celtics managed to pull off a six-point win over Detroit last night in overtime. They had to overcome a 21-point deficit in the first half to do so. The 128-122 win means the Pistons are now on a historic 28-game losing streak. The Seas play at home again tonight, this time against Toronto. The Bruins have the night off. They'll skate on home ice tomorrow against the New Jersey Devils. Overcast today, it'll be in the mid-40s and there's a chance of showers and fog. Low 40s tonight with more rain possible. Tomorrow back to the mid-40s, it'll be mostly cloudy and there's a chance of rain in the morning. Skies finally clear on Sunday, we'll have a sunny day in the low 40s. It's 41 degrees in Boston, you're at WBUR. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from the Public Welfare Foundation committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. From the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, recognizing exceptionally creative individuals. This year's MacArthur Fellows and more information are at macfound.org. And from ECMC Foundation at ecmcfoundation.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Martinez in Los Angeles, California. And I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. A federal judge has approved Georgia's newly revised political maps. Republican lawmakers drew new districts for Congress and the state legislature after the judge found the old ones illegally diluted the power of black voters. But the civil rights and religious groups who sued over the maps say the new ones still violate the Voting Rights Act. WABE Sam Greenglass has been following this story for us from Atlanta. Uh, Sam, good morning. Hey, Michelle. So first, would you just would you mind just reminding us of how we got here? This fall, U.S. District Judge Steve Jones ordered Georgia's Republican-controlled legislature to create one new majority black congressional district. Now, many people thought that meant Democrats would gain a seat in Congress, like what happened next door in Alabama, where the courts ordered that map redrawn. But instead, Republicans have managed to preserve their 9-5 advantage in Congress by dismantling a Democratic voting coalition district in suburban Atlanta. This was a district where Black, Latino, and Asian American voters together formed a majority, and now they are split up. So I imagine that Democrats are frustrated by this ruling, to put it mildly. Yeah, Democrats say they are deeply disappointed and called it a missed opportunity. And for many of them, this fight has been very personal. At the state capitol earlier this month, State Representative Teddy Reese talked about his grandmother, who was born three decades before the Voting Rights Act. And she said to me, son, I clean floors on my hands and my knees so that you could stand on the House floor of the state capitol. But that is not possible if our people are not given opportunity to elect those that look like them. We were not ordered back here by Judge Jones to maintain the status quo. We were ordered here to change Georgia's maps so that they reflect the inevitable shift in Georgia's population. A population, Michelle, that is diversifying and making Georgia elections more competitive. But the judge disagreed. I take it that he said that Republicans did the job of adding a black congressional district. That's right. Uh, Judge Jones, an Obama appointee, concluded that lawmakers followed his order. Now, as for whether multiracial coalition districts are protected by the Voting Rights Act, 
Jones declined to weigh in. He said this case only ever considered black voters and any other questions should be argued in another case. Republicans, they cheered that decision and said the judge affirmed what they have been saying all along, that their new maps comply with the Voting Rights Act. So before we let you go, Sam, describe how the fight in Georgia fits in with all these other redistricting cases in the courts right now. This is a moment when conservatives are testing the bounds of the Voting Rights Act. I talked with Northwestern University law professor Michael Kang, and he says conservatives see an opportunity to narrow the act at a time when it really should be read more expansively, like to protect these multiracial districts, such as the one that's been dismantled in Georgia. I think we're in a moment of change for the Voting Rights Act and for race in American politics. We're seeing an increasingly multiracial democracy that the voting rights law that we have wasn't really built to handle very well. But more immediately, which party controls the next Congress is on the line. And with margins so thin, Michelle, the shape of every district matters. That is WABE Sam Greenglass. Sam, thank you. Thanks, Michelle. Israel's offensive in Gaza continues, with the country saying its aim is to destroy Hamas wherever the group is. An Israeli airstrike yesterday killed at least 21 people, also injuring women and children, according to health officials in Gaza. This was in the south, where thousands of civilians have fled. NPR's Kerry Khan brings us the story of one man and his family struggling to survive there, with reporting from NPR producer Anas Baba in Gaza. From Rafah city, from Tel Sultan neighborhood, It's already 10 a.m. In the southwest corner of the Gaza Strip, near the border with Egypt, producer Anas Baba says tents are everywhere. One cluster catches his attention. Seven families sheltering on a small dirt field behind a gate. One of them is Mr. Nidal Al-Barrawi, 47 years old, with his uh, family of 10 members. Mr. Nidal is going to start to tell us exactly how was his day in Rafah. This is a nightmare I can't wake up from, says Nidal al-Barawi. He leans against a tall pile of thin mats and folded blankets inside the cargo van, where he and most of his family now sleep. The Israeli military ordered his part of northern Gaza to evacuate a couple months ago. Before that, he lived in a three-story home and enjoyed life as a farmer. My wife used to prepare me coffee and I then used to go to work. I would feed my cows, then go and take care of the rest of my farm. Al-Barawi says he also grew apricots and avocados. He would nap midday, then spend evenings with friends and relatives. Everything, everything we needed was right by us. Now that is all gone. Much of northern Gaza has been leveled by Israel following Hamas's attack on October 7th. Hamas killed around 1,200 people and still hold more than 100 hostages in Gaza. Health officials in Gaza say more than 21,000 Palestinians have been killed, and the UN says nearly 2 million are displaced. Al-Barari's family is among some 100 people, a few in cars, most are in tents. There is no running water, no toilets. He says he's been sick for weeks. Here by the coast, it's cold. I feel I'm 100 years old. I'm only 47. Back home, people would tell me I looked only 30. 
I feel so fragile now. Fragile since he's lost 30 pounds. His wife too is getting skinnier. A year ago, I bought my wife a ring. To get it off, she would have to use soap. Now, it falls off her finger. He tries to water a small olive tree next to the van to remind him of home, but water is scarce. His 14-year-old daughter spends every day in line for a few gallons, not enough for the whole family. UNICEF says children displaced by the war in Gaza get less than half the water needed to survive. His seven-year-old son is dehydrated, and Al-Barari worries he will die. He says he thinks of death all the time. I only wish that if I'm to die, I die with all my family. I don't want to die and leave them. Or worse, he says, for him to be the only survivor. With producer Anas Baba in Gaza, I'm Carrie Khan, NPR News, Tel Aviv. This is NPR News. Coming up in 10 minutes on WBUR, the Marketplace Morning Report looks at the possible impact of Greyhound bus stations closing in cities around the country, including Philadelphia and Tampa, Florida. Cloudy with a chance of rain today, and we may also see some spotty fog. Temperatures will rise to the mid-40s. Those fall just a bit to the low 40s tonight, and more showers and fog are possible. Mostly cloudy and mid-40s tomorrow with another chance of rain. Skies clear for a sunny day on Sunday. It'll be in the low 40s. It's 41 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. More than one-third of Massachusetts residents say they plan to make financial resolutions in the new year. That's according to a new survey from MassMutual. As WBUR's Stevie Chapman explains, there are steps you can take to ensure you stick to your goals well into 2024. Whether your financial goals are to build an emergency savings fund or pay down debt, local financial experts say you should start by doing one simple thing. The best way to start with a financial resolution is to write it down and make a commitment to yourself. Amanda Wallace with MassMutual says once you identify your goals, it helps to share your plan with someone you trust. You might want to meet with a financial planner or meet with another friend to help you hold yourself accountable. That can help track your progress in really setting yourself up for a successful 2024. About 70% of people in Massachusetts who plan to make finances a part of their resolution say they are focused on building up their savings. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Stevie Chapman. It's 845. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. From the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at WallaceFoundation.org. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station.
This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. A new generation of architecture students is facing a new reality. Climate change will radically alter how buildings are conceived. Some students are looking for solutions by thinking about how older buildings can be repurposed. As Eve Zukoff reports, a long, vacant firehouse in New Bedford is offering a test case for architecture students from Howard University. Hi, I'm Jai. I'm Raisa. I'm Trey. And, and we, we are, are Team Lumina. <laughs> Three Howard students are trying to film a 90-second video explaining how they could reimagine the Hillman Street Firehouse in the heart of the city. Okay, let me try this one more time. Okay. Sophomore Jai Edward Blyden delivers his lines first. Built in 1892, the Hillman Firehouse is a representation of New Bedford's best and bravest men who saved countless lives and fought ferocious fires to keep the town safe and secure. The red brick building, a Romanesque revival, has boarded up windows, a crumbling facade, and a perimeter fence. It's been vacant for almost 30 years. But a dozen students on the Howard University team see hints of the firehouse's former glory. They point up at floral motifs in the brick and a small tower on the back corner that makes the building look like a castle. It has a lot of charm. The students made the trek from Washington to Massachusetts' south coast as part of a program called the Envision Resilience Challenge, which brings together city planners, community members, and college students in climate-vulnerable areas. They're here to learn what it would take to restore the building's exterior, reusing everything they can, and then redesign its interior with modern, affordable apartments. And as church bells chime across the street, senior Raisa Magampwe says a major part of the project is learning how to design the building so that it actually creates more energy than it uses. Our design goals are to regenerate, advocate, and provide a new opportunity for the Hillman Street Firehouse. The building and construction sector is responsible for about 40% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions. But this new generation of architects is learning what it would take to knock that number down by resuscitating older structures with a minimal carbon footprint. We're working with three big goals. What will create the equity which we want? What will create the energy efficiency? What will create regeneration? That's Nia Malou, assistant professor at Howard University's College of Engineering and Architecture. She says every material that went into this building 130 years ago costs carbon. Consider, she says, what it took to manufacture, transport, and assemble just one brick. Literally, it's ridiculous if you start adding the carbon. But if I can reuse that brick for another 100 years, then it is so worth it. New Bedford itself stands as an emblem of vulnerability to climate change. A recent report found sea levels around the city are projected to rise more than two feet in 25 years. Malou says she wants hope for the firehouse to represent hope for our planet. When you revive something, like when you layer future on history, it becomes present and it's the most beautiful thing. They're working out how to divide the building into as many as nine apartments with one or two bedrooms each. They talk about how in the next phase of the building's life, they could replace a gas heating system with solar panels and electric heat pumps. Then they can make sure the building has a tighter envelope so less of that heat leaks out. Senior Journey O'Neill says they can even use that little tower as a focal point, visible for miles around. Hopefully we can use the top of it as a, as a monitor to where you could get a, a great view of the rest of the community. 
Ultimately, though, O'Neill and the others see the project as a model for strengthening the community. I really want our structure to be a high standard in terms of bringing people together in housing that people can feel very comfortable and their kids can grow up in and they can be established and be successful. The students have until April to develop the concept. And then they'll share their plans with a local architect who's been charged with leading a real-life rejuvenation of the Hillman Street Firehouse. Perhaps some of their ideas will go into the final design. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Eve Zuckoff. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour with the latest on this morning's coordinated missile attacks on towns and cities across Ukraine by Russia. Ukrainian officials say the raids have left at least 16 people dead. It's 8.50. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, supporting local charities during the Share the Love event. Learn more at MetroWestSubaru.com. And MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science. MathWorks.com slash MOS. Hi there. It's Margaret Lowe, the CEO of WBUR. As this year comes to an end, I'm filled with gratitude for you, for your time, your trust in us, and your enduring support. I hope you can't imagine a day without WBUR because we can't imagine a day without you. If you haven't had a chance to give this year and you'd like to, please go to WBUR.org and click on the donate button. It's the one with the little heart next to it. Thank you and happy, happy holidays. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Friday morning. Former President Donald Trump says he plans to appeal a decision to keep him off of the 2024 primary ballot in Maine. Kim Jong-un has ordered North Korean industrial and military sectors to prepare for war with the U.S. And a federal judge in Georgia is upholding a revised congressional map that creates a new black district and protects the state's Republican seats in Congress. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include MFA Boston, presenting Fashion by Sargent, the exhibition the Boston Globe calls unapologetically gorgeous. Closes January 15th. Tickets at MFA.org. Rain and fog this morning, otherwise overcast today in the mid-40s. Temperatures only fall a bit tonight to the low 40s, and we may see some more showers. Another chance of rain tomorrow. It'll be cloudy and back in the mid-40s. Skies finally clear on New Year's Eve. It'll be sunny and in the low 40s. It's 41 degrees in Boston. Google will pay for its private browser that wasn't so private. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Betterment, the automated investing platform that helps make it easy to be invested for the long term. Learn more at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk. I'm David Brancaccio. Alphabet's Google has agreed to settle a class action lawsuit alleging it misled millions of people using the supposed privacy mode of its Chrome Internet browser. The suit alleged Google continued to track user activity. Plaintiffs were seeking billions in damages. Marketplace's Nova Safo has some details here. Yeah, and we don't know what the final settlement amount is, David, but details have not been disclosed yet. Uh, the lawsuit, though, is seeking compensation for users going back to 2016, potentially millions of people. So the total could have been $5 billion or more if Google lost a trial. 
There won't be a trial, though. The two sides submitted a request to a federal judge in Oakland, California, to halt a trial date, which was set for early February. They say they've reached a preliminary settlement. They will continue to negotiate the details and plan to present a formal agreement for court approval by late February. Nova, tell me more about what the plaintiffs believed Google did wrong. All right, so if if you're using Chrome, you can switch to so-called incognito mode, and the plaintiffs were alleging that Google misled users about how private that mode was. Uh, Google has said that it makes it clear that incognito mode simply means that browsing activity is not saved locally on a computer or browser. The plaintiffs said Google's behavior was misleading because it continued to collect user activity data. Even if that data wasn't being stored locally, the allegation was that Google did not explicitly tell users it would be collecting that information. All right, Nova, thank you. A number of Greyhound bus stations are closing, including Philadelphia and Tampa. 20 Lake Holdings, an affiliate of a hedge fund, owns the real estate and has been putting some of it up for sale. That means Greyhound has been moving some stations to the suburbs and in some cases making people wait for buses on the sidewalk, city bus style. Marketplace's Kristen Schwab has that. Greyhound was once synonymous with inner-city bus transportation. But in the 90s and early aughts, new bus companies like Megabus came onto the scene. They didn't have bus stations. Uh, They didn't have baggage handlers. They didn't have a lot of things. They basically just had drivers. Randall O'Toole is a transportation policy analyst at the Thoreau Institute. He says Greyhound wants to copy the stationless model. O'Toole says that can be good for passengers. If you have a choice between going for $30 and have a station or $10 and have a curbside stop, you're going to choose $10. But Nick Klein, who teaches transportation planning at Cornell, says bus stations are important infrastructure for travelers. Very few people would say their favorite place to hang out for an afternoon is a bus terminal, but they offer shelter, they offer stores to get something to eat, they offer places to go to the bathroom. And they offer a safe place to wait. I'm Kristen Schwab for Marketplace. It has taken 33 years for this key stock market indicator in Japan to go above a record high set back in 1989. But that has happened this year with the Nikkei 225 index in Tokyo going up 30 percent here in 2023. The new high was fueled by a low Japanese yen, which makes overseas profits higher when brought back home, plus reopening after pandemic and generally solid profits from key Japanese companies. Here, the S&P 500 is still just a few points below its all-time high this morning. We'll see if the record is broken ahead of the new year. The index is up 25% year-to-date, but stock index futures now are little changed. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Paychex, where HR, insurance, benefits, and payroll integrate into one platform. Whether two or 2,000 employees, Paychex can help make HR simple for businesses and employees. I've been checking in with Marketplace reporters as we take stock, as it were, of the year, drawing to a close. My friend, colleague, and motorcycle aficionado, Kimberly Adams, is our senior Washington correspondent. You may have heard her hosting the half-hour Marketplace in the evening this week. Kimberly, hi. Hey, David. As we both think back across 2023, I guess it's fair to say the air in D.C. was not choked by all the new legislation passed, signed, and put into law. 
No, but it certainly was choked up by the drama. It felt like we were lurching from one crisis to the next, whether it be the House Speaker fight or the debt ceiling, whether or not we could pass a spending bill or were we going to have a government shutdown. And to be honest, it's not looking much better for next year. A lot of these issues are still kind of unresolved. All right. But the executive branch on its own does have the power to put into force really some major legislation from years gone by. Right. So we are starting to see the rollout and implementation of some of the big pieces of legislation that were passed earlier on in the Biden administration. Money is starting to flow from the CHIPS Act, which is supposed to build up our domestic infrastructure for semiconductor manufacturing. Projects are underway in some parts of the country with money from the infrastructure law that actually got done a couple years ago. And while we still haven't seen much of that robust EV charging infrastructure promised from the Inflation Reduction Act. A lot of those efforts are underway and that stuff is coming. My kingdom for an EV charger. You hear that? <laughs> and I think we have work to do covering our business reporter slices of an election. So many slices of that. Yeah, that's what I'm going to be focused on for much of 2024. You know, of course, campaigning and fundraising has already been going on for months. This election is set to be the most expensive ever, which it feels like we say that every cycle. And the economy is always a top issue in both local, state and national races. Campaigns, though, have so much data about us now from how we browse on the Internet to where we go and, and what we watch on TV. And with all of these new artificial intelligence tool and other kinds of technology layered on top of fragmented audiences across different platforms, I think this election we are going to see all of that money going into hyper-targeted messages about what is and isn't happening in the economy as campaigns try to sway voters ahead of November. Marketplace's senior Washington correspondent Kimberly Adams. Thank you very much. Thanks, David. She also hosts our Make Me Smart podcast with Kai Rizdahl. I was just listening to their discussion of U.S. history through the prism of food, jello during the Gilded Age, spam during World War II. Our executive producer is Kelly Silvera. Our digital producer is Dylan Mietnin. Our engineers are Jake Cherry and Becca Weinman. I'm David Brancaccio. It's the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. Cloudy in mid-40s today with a chance of rain and patchy fog. Mostly cloudy tonight in the low 40s. It's 41 degrees in Boston and the BBC News Hour is coming up next. I'm Deepa Fernandez. We'll reflect on the year in pop culture, including one very pink and unforgettable smash hit. Hi Barbie. 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 Yep, the Barbie movie and more big moments next time here and now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Morning Edition executive producer Dan Guzman. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.